just want to remember today uh, those who've served in our country and veterans and praise God for the freedoms that we still do have. Amen. And I believe we have some flags for after the service that will be given out. Great. Great. Yeah. So after the service, we have just some flags just to remember and, and, and be thankful for what we have and for those who have served and, and given their lives for us. So thank you for that. Uh, this morning, I was just kind of praying through what to, to come and preach to you and, and where to go in our, our scripture time together. And uh, I know that Pastor Tim is still preaching through Ephesians. Is that right? I think he's still in the book of Ephesians. So I, I just worked through Ephesians um, a year or so ago in our own church. And uh, there's a verse in chapter one that I really just wanted to spend some time on this morning. Now, I'm not pretending that I'm going to come behind him and do a better job than Pastor Tim did when he was on this verse. That's not my goal. I, I simply believe that God's word is rich enough and deep enough and full enough that we can go back to the same verses and mine more and more truth out of the words of God. And so my goal is to come behind him. I know, I think I looked it up on the website. It was about a year ago he was in chapter one, I think. And uh, I want to, yeah, <laughs> that's the pace. You got to decide how long to spend in these books. But I, I want to come behind him and maybe just glean a little bit as we really focus in on uh, verse 11 in particular. My goal this morning is to encourage you greatly with some very simple yet profoundly important Bible truths about the nature of God and, and the way he works in our lives. And for me, this topic, the, the sovereignty of God, is one of those doctrines that comforts me no matter what's going on in my life. And so I want to call you today to have a very high view of God. I want to call you today to think high thoughts of God. And I want, to, I want to call you to rest in his wisdom and his power and his goodness and his sovereign hand in your life. I, I firmly believe that no matter what burdens you brought to church this morning, no matter what might be stressing you out or might be consuming your thoughts in your life at this time, if you can just take a breath this morning and soak in what these verses are teaching us, you, you will be blessed and it will provide comfort for your souls. Uh, this this verse and this concept that I want to preach on this morning is very deep. And I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So that means there's a quality to God's work that is impossible for us to fully wrap our minds around. You know, God does not fit in our little boxes, and we can't just bring him down to our level and comprehend the fullness of who he is and what he does. But what we can do this morning is admire him and worship him and exalt him as the God who we just read a moment ago. His thoughts are higher than ours, and his ways are higher than, than our ways. So I'm struck by the fact that Paul says that God's ways are past finding out. So today, I just kind of want to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon with you, so to speak, and just kind of look out at the sovereign hand of God in our lives, and just be in awe and wonder of how he works. I use that illustration because my wife is from Arizona, and when we got married, I remember going out the week before the wedding, we got married in Arizona, and my family and I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time. Anybody ever been out there to the Grand Canyon? Uh, standing on the edge of that cliff, I heard a preacher say this one time, nobody does that. Nobody goes and stands on the edge of that cliff and puts their hands on their hips and says, man, I feel so big 
and so mighty, you know, in this moment. No, nobody can stand there and say, look how big I am. You actually stand there and you feel very small. And you're overwhelmed with this panorama that you're looking at. It's so big. It's so deep. It's so wide. It's, it's, it's stunning. It's beautiful. You just naturally feel little when you stand there. And that's how I feel when I come to texts like this in Ephesians chapter 1. If you catch a glimpse of this glorious aspect of God's character, you'll feel small in a good way. You'll feel small like a child who's being taken care of by a big, strong dad who knows what he's doing. And so I hope you have a sense of this comfort. Very simply, let's just look at Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 11, it's one simple sentence from the Apostle Paul in this amazing doxology that begins the letter of Ephesians. In verse 11, he says, In him also, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, here it is, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let me just emphasize that phrase one more time according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If I had to guess, there are people in this room who have too small a view of God. I just assume that in general, that when I look out and I get to preach God's word, I assume that we all have this problem. We tend to think little thoughts of God. And I'm not accusing you this morning of, of worshiping the wrong God. I'm not saying that you're uh, confessing Allah or that you're, you're distracted by the Jehovah's Witnesses or some sort of false theology. I'm not talking about that. I, I believe that there are people who fill our churches that believe in the God of the Bible. They believe in the God who has revealed himself in his living word. And that's right and that's true and that's accurate. But I also think there's a plague in the church where we don't think highly enough of God. So we can identify the one true living God in his word, and yet it's also possible for us to have a low estimation of what he's like. So let me just give some examples to kind of flesh that out with you. you. You may believe, for example, that God has a plan for your life. Lots of people who go to church say that, like, I know God has a plan. I know he's got a purpose for my life. I know he's got a plan for this, this thing that's going on. And yet, in the very next breath, we often say things like, I need God to intervene in this situation. I, I need God to intervene and help me out right now. Well, I kind of resent that language because an intervention takes place when somebody who wasn't involved gets involved. Right? If I'm having a crisis in my life and my family says, it's time for an intervention, and they bring somebody in to sit down and talk to me, they're, they're introducing somebody into the situation who wasn't a part of it before. Now there's extra help. Now there's another voice, another influence that's going to contribute to this situation. And I, I wonder if we think of God like that sometimes. I need God to intervene as if to say he hasn't been involved, but now, now I need him to pay attention. He hasn't been working. He's been distant. He's been distracted. He's been doing something else. But now the things are really, really bad. Now the things are at a, a crisis level. Now I need him to, to sit down and pay attention to what's happening. I wonder if some of us think of God as, a, as an emergency responder who will get involved, but 
He's not always there. He's not constantly governing your life. You may think that God is powerful, but I wonder if you think of his power in terms of him wanting to do things, wishing he could accomplish things, but depending on creatures to get it done, and so his plans often get frustrated. I wonder if you think of God as one who has good intentions, but he doesn't, he's not able to follow through with it because those humans just don't cooperate all the time. That creation that he's made, you know, it just kind of is broken and things don't work. So we have a God who's wishing and wanting to accomplish certain things, but incapable of doing it because he's just not getting the help that he needs from creatures and humans. If that's what you think, church, then I have to confront you this morning. Your view of God is too small. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we're reading about the one who, according to the purpose of his will, works all things. All things. The all things of verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 1, I believe, is exhaustive and comprehensive. In other words, I think that all things literally means all things, that God has a purpose for all things that take place in this world. And that means everything that takes place in your life. So I don't want you to listen to this message this morning and think to yourself, God's got a plan for all this stuff, but there's this little slice of my life or there's this little part of my experience that he doesn't have a plan for, doesn't have a purpose for. I don't want you to think that. I don't want you to put everything on the table this morning and consider that every single minute detail of who you are and what's going on in your life fits into this all things that God is working together. I I compiled a, a little list here of some scriptures that just blow me away in their demonstration of God's sovereign hand in so many different details of life on earth. So just listen to some of these things that scripture says God has a plan for, God has a purpose for. These are in no particular order. God has a purpose for birds that fall out of their nests. God has a purpose for sparrows that fall out of their nests. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Could there be anything more insignificant in our eyes or more irrelevant to our lives than a bird falling out of its nest? And yet the will of Almighty God is involved in that bird falling out of its nest. God has a purpose for the outcome of a dice roll. Solomon says in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now what I love about that verse is when Solomon describes the lot, you've read in the Old Testament when they would cast lots to make a decision or discern the will of the Lord. It was a process that was essentially meant to be random. And I put that in air quotes because it was random in the sense that the humans involved couldn't predict the outcome. But Solomon says that seemingly random process is actually decided by the hand of God. So next time you're playing Monopoly with your family and somebody rolls doubles, it was, it was God's sovereign purpose that they would land on free parking. You know that for a fact. There's even the lot, even the dice roll, There's no such thing as luck. There's nothing random 
whatever happens in this life. We can't predict certain things. But Solomon says that God has a purpose for them. God has a purpose for the loss and gain of money. 1 Samuel 2, 7. This is Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he lifts up. So when you prosper, it's because God has a purpose for that season of prosperity in your life. And when you lose, and when you suffer, and things are tight, God has a purpose for that as well. God has a purpose for making money, and God has a purpose when you're not making money. Didn't Paul say this in Philippians chapter 4? I've learned how to abound, and I've learned how to be abased. I've learned to be content, because I'm in Christ. God has a purpose for the completion of travel plans. Think about that. When you make a plan and you set out this itinerary and you want to go and you want to do something, God has a purpose for whether or not those plans succeed. This is from James chapter 4. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So when you have a a trip and you make plans and everything works out fine and the the tickets are okay and the flight's on time and the hotel's available and you get to your destination, that's because God had a purpose for you getting there. And when things go off the rails and you can't get where you want to go, God has a purpose for that. It was probably 10 years ago. I remember, again, my wife is from Arizona. We flew out there for Christmas one year. And we were supposed to, after a week, fly back to Philadelphia. And there was this snowstorm that just popped up at at the last minute. And so after driving three hours from her house in Flagstaff, just north of Flagstaff, Arizona, to Phoenix, we had to turn around and go back. And turns out it was like another three or four days we had to spend in Arizona. And I was miserable. (laughs) This was messing up. I was going to have to spend extra time off of work. I worked at Ranch Hope at the time. That That was my job. I was so frustrated, I was so angry, I was just, I was kind of just bitter, like this is just ruining all my plans. And don't you know, three or four days later, we made it back to New Jersey, and a few months later, my father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer, and within two months he was dead. Those extra three days were the last time my wife got to spend with her father when he was still in relatively good health. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here in my limited perspective, and I'm angry because my plans aren't being fulfilled. This is going to ruin my weekend. This is going to ruin what I have to do on Monday night. Now I've got to push all this stuff back. And I had no sense that even this interruption was part of God's sovereign purpose. You know, it's, it's kind of sad because I can look back on it and be ashamed of myself. I want to learn to live in the moment with that conviction. Lord, there is a reason for this. I trust you, it's a good reason. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Even our travel plans. God has a purpose for the decision of kings and governors and those who rule. This is Proverbs 21, verse 1. The the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You guys, (laughs) wake up and listen to this. The rulers of this world make their decisions according to God's sovereign purpose. So just when you want to pull your hair out and be so frustrated at some of the crazy things that happen, 
You can step back and take a breath, and you can say, in the big picture, God has a purpose for a country going this way or that way, for a ruler making this decision or that decision. If you understand the sovereignty of God, if you believe his word, Proverbs says, he holds the king's hand in his heart. And things go the way God decrees. God has a purpose for physical impairments. In Exodus chapter 4, you remember the scene with the burning bush. Moses approaches and he has this conversation with Yahweh. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Listen to God's answer. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Here's Moses standing before God and saying, I don't speak well. My tongue doesn't work the way it's supposed to, God. So I can't go talk to Pharaoh and I can't go and speak your word because I've got this physical inability. I've got something wrong with me. And God fires right back at Moses and he said, who made you that way? Who has deprived you of the ability to speak well? God has no problem taking ownership for it. Have not I, the Lord? And and God adds to it. Who makes the deaf, the blind, the mute? God says, I've got a purpose for this physical affliction. Got a purpose for this inability to speak that you have to wrestle with, Moses. So we could say that Moses was not a good speaker on purpose. It was on God's purpose. I know some of these are very sensitive points, but listen to the word of God. He has a purpose for the sickness of children. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you remember the story with David and Bathsheba and what happens after he commits adultery and he kills Uriah. It says Nathan departed David's house and the Lord struck the child. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. The child didn't get sick for some random, meaningless reason. God even had a purpose for this child being sick. Now, I know this stuff runs pretty deep. I'm trying to make the point that the all things of Ephesians 1.11 is all things. God, my, my, my sick child, my sick grandchild... There, there can't be any good reason for that, God. And God says, and it says in God's word that he was the one who made David's son ill. God has a purpose for giving life and a purpose for taking life. This is again from the prayer of Hannah. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. That means life begins when and where God says. And life ends when and where God says. It's just like the waves of the sea. Remember the verse in Job where it's describing the mighty roaring waves of the ocean and God looks at that big Pacific ocean and he says, you could come this far, but no further because I said so. And that's true of the days of our lives. We will have as much time as he says and no more. And nobody can rob us of it so that we have less than he ordains. God even has a purpose for the suffering of his covenant people. Psalm 44, 11 says, you, you have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. 
So the psalmist could say, Lord, this is back in, in Psalm 44, Lord, we as your people, the nation of Israel, we've been given up like sheep. We've been given over to our enemies so they can eat us up. But the psalmist understood this, you have given us up to them. Lord, you have turned us over for this suffering. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. When you suffer, it's measured. It's according to God's purpose. We'll talk more about that in a moment as well. It includes difficult things. And in case any of this strikes you as contradictory, in case you would say, well, how could God ordain the hard things, the bad things, even the sinful things that have happened in my life? How could God have any hand or purpose or plan or use for that? You need look no further than the cross. If it seems difficult to reconcile in your mind that a good, faithful God would govern a world where bad things happen, look to the cross. Acts 4.27 Peter says this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, listen to this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You know the worst thing that's ever happened in this world is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? In the history of humanity, There has only been one innocent person who's ever been executed, and it's Jesus. And Peter can stand up and he can proclaim as an apostle that this execution of God's son was according to God's purpose. That it actually fulfilled his will. You mean God had a good reason for the worst thing that's ever happened? 100%. Hasn't God brought the greatest good out of that worst evil, the salvation of your soul. His glory and praise as the forgiver of sins and the redeemer of his people. God has brought the best things out of the worst thing that's ever happened. And if you can look at that ultimate example of God bringing good out of the worst thing that's ever happened, then you can trickle that down to your life and say in the, in the lesser things that have happened, God can bring good out of this. Let me go a step further. He will. Work it together for good. He is using it for good right now. Jesus was crucified according to the purpose of his father. Now, I I recognize that some of these points go down really easy, and some don't. (laughs) If you and I went down to the beach, I'm not a beach person. I don't like the sand and the salt water and the sunburn and all that stuff, so... Let's just pretend I did for a minute. We could all go down to the beach and watch the sunset, and we could sit there together and admire the beauty of this landscape. And we could all think of a thousand reasons why God would write that into his story. So beautiful. It's serene. The waves are crashing on the shore. It's just a a, a glorious picture of his creativity and his artistic touch, isn't it? That's not hard to figure out why God would write that into his story. But it's a lot harder to reconcile the loss of a loved one or or a phone call that there was a car accident and and nobody survived. 
or the news that the test came back and it's cancer. That's a little different, isn't it? Emotionally, that's a little harder to wrestle with and say, how could God have a hand in this? How could God have a purpose for this? My absolute favorite illustration along those lines is when I, uh, my son, my, my oldest son, we've got four kids. My oldest son is about to turn 12, but when he was a real little guy, and we would take him to the doctor. Uh, this is pre-COVID days, so we're not talking about COVID vaccines right now, but you know, like the typical vaccinations for a kid. I still remember taking him to those appointments when it was time to get a shot. You guys know what I'm talking about? And, and he's little enough that he's not fully aware of, of what's going on. And if you just kind of step back for a moment and you put yourself in his shoes, he's in this weird, strange place that's cold. And some creepy guy in a white jacket is coming up to stab him. And dad is holding his arms down. But let's think about this. What's going through my son's mind? I don't want to be here. I don't like this person that's coming up. This, this instrument that's being inserted into my arm, it hurts. And my son's looking at me, isn't he, with tears in his eyes. And he's asking me, like, how could you let this happen to me, Dad? He's not saying that. He's too young. But you know that look in their eyes where it hurts. And there's a little bit of confusion, isn't there? Because he's thinking to himself, I know my dad. I know my dad loves me. I know my dad trusts me. I, I know I can trust my dad. But dad's the one who brought me here. And dad's the one who invited the stranger to come stab me. <laughs> and dad's holding me down and letting him do it. Is that not the perfect illustration of how we wrestle with God's providence sometimes? We're looking up and we're saying, Lord, I know I can trust you. I know your heart. But I, I can't figure out right now why you are letting me hurt this bad. And you know what we say to God? We say the same thing that my son Levi would have said to me. There can't be any good reason for this pain. That's what my son would say. You know, you interviewed him after the doctor's appointment. He would say, that was for nothing. My arm hurts. I don't, I don't know what to make of my dad's actions. This was just a waste of a day. Because he can't understand that there is a purpose that's beyond his comprehension. Right, he's too young. If I were to say, well, son, there's some viruses that could really get in and, and, and mess you up and limit your ability to function normally or maybe kill you. You know, he can't reason on that level, not yet. And so in the moment, I, as his father, am going to do what's best for him, even though he can't understand it, even though he can't emotionally rest in it. But I love him enough that I'm going to bring him through that pain, and I do have a good reason for it. That's how we should think of God working all things together for good, including our pain. You know, Job thought like this. Everybody knows Job's story. Everything fell apart in one day. Kids, dead. Possessions, gone. A few days later, his bodily health went downhill. Everything bottomed out in Job's life. And what does Job say in chapter 1, verse 21? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now I want you to notice, Job did not say, uh, Satan came and stole it all away from me. Job doesn't say, those Chaldeans, oh, those rotten Chaldeans, they came and ruined my life. Job doesn't pinpoint this on any creature. Job recognizes the Lord has done this. The Lord has the right to take away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you have faith like that? On the authority of Ephesians 1.11, I want to tell you this morning that God has a purpose for everything going on in your life right now. And there's no wasted pain. Now, in case you didn't note this, God does not consult with anyone when he determines his purpose. God doesn't call a, a huddle where he says, all right, you guys, come on in here. Let's figure out what we got to do. Let's come up with a game plan. The Lord doesn't look to anyone outside of himself to figure out what to do, if you will. Throughout this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a few phrases that kind of get repeated. They pop up over and over again. In verse 5, it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse 9, it says, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And then in verse 11, according to the counsel of his will. Now, this means that God, again, consults with nobody. God doesn't have a meeting room or a planning room where he brings in angels or humans to, to think through the next steps. I just wrote this down. I think it's kind of a funny way of making the point. When a sparrow falls out of its nest, God doesn't consult with Peter first. God doesn't ask if it's okay for this bird to fall and hit the ground. He does his will. His thoughts are completely independent from outside pressure or outside influence. Nobody's manipulating God. Nobody's informing God. You need to understand this when you pray, and maybe some of us don't understand this. When you pray, you are not updating God as if he doesn't know what's going on in your life. Prayer is not God's way of getting the scoop. He already knows. He's already at work. Prayer is his way of bringing you in so you can rest in him and so you can walk through it confidently and with faith. Prayer ultimately is for your good. It's not for God to get information. It would really improve our prayer lives if we understood this. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 through 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Do you hear the rhetorical questions there? Who has taught God? Who's helping God write the story of your life? The rhetorical answer is nobody. There's no one who instructs God. There's no one who's helping him. He sets his purpose, and he fulfills his purpose. And here's some good news. He doesn't just ordain the end. He's not just saying, well, I want you to, to get to heaven someday. All the other stuff doesn't really matter. As long as I get you to heaven, that's good enough. God ordains every step. He ordains the means as well as the end. So God doesn't say, I'll see you at the finish line. <laughs> He's with you every step, every day, every part of the way. God doesn't depend on anybody to accomplish his purpose. I said this in the introduction. God never says, here's what I want to fulfill in Tim's life, but man, I don't have anybody who's willing to help me out and, and cooperate. If I could just get somebody who's on my side and could see it my way. God, God doesn't depend on creatures in that way. Psalm 115 verse 3 uh, compares the worthlessness of idols with the power of the living God. And Psalm 115 says this, our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. So the psalmist just said, the idols are deaf and dumb, they can't talk, they can't walk, they can't think, they can't hear any prayer, but our God is in heaven, and he does his will. He fulfills 
his purpose. Nobody can thwart him. Nobody can stop him. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God fulfills his purpose in our lives. Now, something that amazes me is that he does choose to use creatures. He doesn't depend on us, but he very much uses us, doesn't he? He didn't have to do it that way, but he chooses to do it that way. It's part of what's so incredible about God. He fulfills his purpose, sure enough, but he actually brings you in and makes you a part of the process. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story when Saul is about to be anointed the king of Israel? Some of you know the story, maybe you're not familiar with it. Basically, Saul is going to be anointed as the first king of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the way Saul is introduced is really interesting. His father's donkeys go missing. And so as you read through 1 Samuel, you see this story where Saul's father tells him to go look for the donkeys. And Saul and his servant are walking all over the place, and they can't find the donkeys. And they're, they're searching, and they're traveling through the land, and they, they can't locate where these animals have gotten off to. And then his servant just so happens to have a thought. He says, hey, there's a, there's a prophet in town, I think. Uh, maybe we could ask the prophet. Maybe he can help us out. And they have this little conversation back and forth, and Saul basically says, well, we've got nothing to give the prophet. How, how could we go to a prophet empty-handed? And the servant says, well, I could just give him what, what I have here. And they just kind of work their way through it and decide they'll try it out and see what happens. And they get to the city, and they just so happen to run into a group of young women who are going to draw water. They say to the women, is the prophet in town? And the women say, oh, yeah, he's uh, just up here. If you, if you go now, you, you should be able to catch him. You should be able to bump into him. And Saul and his servant go. They run directly into Samuel. Now, I just want you to think about that again. The donkeys go missing. They go searching for the donkeys. They can't find them. They just happen to... Consider talking to a prophet. They have a little gift they can give the prophet. They just bump into these women at the right time. And here comes Samuel and they have a conversation. But then listen to what 1 Samuel 9.15 says. This is so amazing. The Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before. He said, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. That just gives me chills. God said the day, 24 hours before, I am sending you a man. And how did it happen? There's no angel that went down and said, Saul, go see Samuel, for this is Yahweh's will. That's not what happened. Some donkeys went missing, and Kish, his father, said, go look for him, and they couldn't find him. And as they wandered around through this random process, there is a God who's governing the whole thing and saying to, to, to Samuel, I'm bringing you somebody. You see how God takes ownership of it. Well, God, those are just a bunch of random things. Those were just a bunch of, you know, donkeys going missing. Who cares about donkeys going missing? Well, apparently God used that to bring Saul to Samuel. Those small and seemingly random events were part of God's plan. And they fulfilled God's purpose. Now, I want to challenge you to believe that about your life. I think this is the kind of message that we should come back to every once in a while as Christians and just kind of take a breath and step back and remember our 
our big, strong, wise, sovereign Father. Are we prone to be like Peter, right? We're walking on the water, we're going to Jesus, and aren't we always prone to just turn our eyes and look at the waves and look at the wind and look at the storm and take our eyes off of this this loving one who's taking care of all the details? We're, We're prone to do that. We just sang the hymn, didn't we? Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Let's, let's just come back this morning to the solid ground that we can stand on. My God is in charge. His hand is on every detail of my life, my health, my family, my money, my future, the president, the taxes, all of it. And as I close, let me kind of put a bow on top of this because God does tell us part of the, the purpose for these things. There are some things that we're going to say, I can't understand how this exactly fits in. But there's some big principles you can apply to help. God tells us clearly in his word and in Ephesians 1 that the purpose of all things is for his praise and glory. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. That means everything that's happening is ultimately to praise and glorify and magnify God. And if we understood things rightly, there's no suffering that we wouldn't go through if it brought him glory and praise. His glory is what makes him stand out from all of his creation. It's what makes him shine brighter than everything else. Basically, God is a really big deal. Amen? God is a really, really big deal. And everything in your life exists to show how big of a deal he is. Everything about you is designed to celebrate how great he is. Here's another piece of good news. His glory and your good are inseparable. So as he's glorified in your life, he's also blessing you in the greatest way imaginable. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So I can not only know that God has a reason for this, but he's got a good reason for the things that I'm going through. He's going to be glorified in my life, and he's going to make me better. He's going to make these things work together, even for my good. So the purpose of the universe, what a a big statement at the end here. The purpose of the universe is doxological, not soteriological. What I mean is the purpose of the universe is not your salvation. Did you know that? Not, everything doesn't exist for you to be saved. That's not the ultimate purpose of everything. The purpose of everything is the praise of God. Now, thankfully, his praise shows in our salvation. It sure enough does. But we got to get the man-centered glasses off and realize this whole universe is not a stage for my salvation. This whole universe is a stage for his glory to be displayed in dazzling fashion. That means in heaven... When God remakes everything, there will not be any evangelists, but there will be choir directors. There won't be anybody else reaching out to save the lost. That's not the purpose of eternity. That's not the purpose of of God saving us and remaking us. But enjoying him and glorifying him, that will last forever. Amen. I, I hope you can be encouraged today and meditate on that verse. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Hallelujah.
Let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll take the table together. I'd like to pray just at the end of that, that word. Oh, Lord, I thank you so much. I, I just want to bow before you in prayer with my brothers and sisters this morning. And Lord, you can look at this, this congregation and you know all the things, you know all the details that are taking place in their lives. And my prayer is that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take this beautiful, precious truth and bring it to bear on their hearts. Give them eyes to see, give them ears to hear, give them hearts to trust. Lord, we rest in this reality you work it all together according to your own purpose. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.